Well, good morning, friends. Happy Easter Resurrection Sunday, as I like to call it. Our Super Bowl event of our faith is this Sunday that we celebrate. And it's not only a good Sunday because the tomb's empty, it's a good Sunday because Michigan is in the finals tomorrow night. Hey, hey, hey. Now, I will confess. When I come back on stage next week, please don't hassle me when Michigan loses tomorrow night, because I believe they will get blown out by Villanova, but I know, now you're like, you're not a Michigan fan. No, I'm realistic. I believe they're going to blow us out of the water, but uh, hey, it's great uh, to see everyone here this morning. Thanks for hanging out and trying to find a parking spot in between services here, and this service, you're going to see nine people get baptized. This service... Amen. And then our 1115 service, we have 10 people in that service getting baptized. So we've got a lot of things happening this morning, and I know you guys as well have a lot of things happening in your own homes. So would you just turn to your neighbor and just give them a fist bump, say, glad to see you here. If you're really close, give someone a bear hug that's not awkward, though, like someone you know. (laughs) Hugging a stranger may be really weird. Oh, yeah. Well, welcome. We're kicking off a brand new series on Easter, Resurrection Sunday, titled Jesus Is. And I I don't know about you, but I I like a big bear hug. What Frank just did to me was awesome. Like a bear hug that like really gets your back, you know, and they like pop your back and you're kind of like, ow, that hurts, but it feels great, right? Have you ever had a hug where you went and tried to embrace someone and they were like a mannequin to you? Like, they're like, do not touch me. And you're a touchy person, and you went in for a hug, and then you felt really awkward afterwards, right? Or another time when you go to hug people, and you go in and embrace them, and you guys both go with your heads the same direction, and almost kiss, and it's real awkward. And then you're like, oh, I'll go this way. No, okay, just you go that way, I'll go this way. And it's just weird. I think hugging is a lot like grace. I think sometimes we hear about God's grace. We hear about this awesome forgiveness and this relentless love pursuing us, this idea of second and third and fourth chances. We hear this word of grace and we are kind of like hugging sometimes where we don't know how to embrace it. Because oftentimes in our lives, we tend to work towards God's favor. God, I'm not good enough to receive this grace. I must do more things, pray more often, read the Bible more often, come to church more often. All great things, but we feel sometimes that we have to earn God's grace in order to get it and receive it. It's a lot like a hug that can be awkward. We just don't know what to do with it. In fact, Webster's Dictionary defines grace this way, unmerited divine assistance given to humans for their regeneration or sanctification. There's probably four of you that got that, right? Regeneration, sanctification. Wait, what? Right? You know what I love about Jesus is he spoke very simple. He spoke to the common people. He spoke their language. That's why the crowds 
came after Jesus. Now, if Jesus was here today in person, he would have the greatest Twitter and Snapchat following. Like, because they would just get him. His tweets would be, dude, that was awesome. And you would be retweeting. Is that the right word? Retweeting that? You could tell I do that often. All right? If he had Facebook, everyone would be following Jesus and sharing his posts, and he would be the, an incredible blogger. We would all get online and follow his blog because he spoke that common language. And if you got your Bible or your tablet or your phone, you can turn to the Newer Testament in Luke chapter 15 is where we're going to be this morning because Jesus is going to be very practical with three stories on this idea of grace. So Luke chapter 15, found in the Newer Testament, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, four guys that write about the life of Jesus, his ministry, death and resurrection. And as you turn there, I want to kind of give us just a real, um, just an example of what's happening, setting the stage in Luke 15. Jesus is going to teach three parables. Parables is a fancy term for story. Jesus always taught in story. And you look throughout Jesus' life, you say, why is he always teaching two to three stories every time he has a story? Because in Deuteronomy chapter 15, back in the Older Testament, it says you need two to three witnesses in order for something to be true. So Jesus always taught two to three parables to make his point. Okay? So he's relating it back to Deuteronomy chapter 15 all the time. You see that throughout the Newer Testament. Jesus does two to three examples. All right? In this example, you're going to have two distinct groups listening to the words of Jesus. You're going to have one group over here that's completely different from this group right here. And in Luke chapter 15, verse 1, this is how it begins. It says, now tax collectors and sinners. Can we read those two groups together? Are you ready? Now and we're all gathering around to hear Jesus. This is group over here, the tax collectors who the Jewish people strongly disliked. They taxed up to 70% of what you had. You don't like them. They're outcasts. Many of them were Jews who turned to the Roman government, and you hated the Roman government because they had the oppression over the Jewish people. And now you were a good Jew, turned to help the people who are oppressing us. The tax collectors were hated, and not only were tax collectors there, but sinners. So you have this distinct group over here that is hanging out with Jesus. Notice who he, he attracts. He attracts this group of people. There's something special about Jesus. And then you have a distinct group over here in verse 2. It says, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered. And well, first of all, who are the Pharisees? They're that elite religious group who prim and proper, had it all together, looked great on the outside, maybe struggling on the inside a little bit, but they were the prim and proper right here group. So do you see how distinct these two groups are? Sinners Tax collectors, the hated, the social outcast of society versus the in, the religious. And the religious people muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. This group over here is upset at Jesus. Why in the world does a good rabbi, a good teacher, dare go after those who are social outcasts, who are sinners, who are on the edge of society? Why? 
In other words, Jesus, why are you going to Chick-fil-A all the, all the time with these shady critters? You should not be associating with them. And now Jesus will launch into three stories to make a point. We're going to look more specifically at the third story, but three stories. He goes into, if you grew up in church at all, you may know the parable of the lost sheep. Jesus begins and he speaks to both of these people who are there and he begins to say these things of, suppose each of you had a hundred sheep and one was lost. You would take the 99 and put them together in the flock. They're safe. And you would go searching for your lost sheep. And when you found the lost sheep, you would be so filled with joy because the lost has been found. And then you would take it back to the flock and there would be a party in heaven rejoicing. The heavens rejoice because the lost was found. Can I just say, if you're a follower of Jesus, we ought to be the most joyful people that the planet has ever seen. Every Sunday morning, we ought to be the most nicest, awesome people that our society, our culture has ever seen because we know that the lost can be found. And if heaven's partying, we better be partying. Too many times, people, and I'm sorry if you've been burnt by Christians in the past, we look grumpy sometimes. We are grumpy sometimes, all right? I was grumpy the other day. Just don't ask my wife about it, but I was grumpy, okay? But every day I always say we're trying to be perfect and live like Jesus. We're not perfect, but we're going to live holy lives and seek after him every single day. Every day. We're not perfect. And if you want to call us hypocrites, I agree. We should be full of hypocrites. Absolutely. Because we don't always get it right. We got to learn from our mistakes and say, Jesus, I need your power in my life so I don't keep doing that and help me walk in freedom. And then all of a sudden, you've got the sinners, you've got the religious, and he goes on to his second story, the parable of the lost coin. A woman who has 10 coins loses one. They light up the search party to find the one lost coin. They found it. They rejoice, and it says the angels in heaven rejoice when the lost are found. Once again, two party scenes in heaven. And Jesus has given this example to the religious and the sinners. And then the story we're going to hone in this morning briefly will be Luke chapter 15, and it's called the parable of the lost son. And this story is going to suck the air out of both of these groups. Luke chapter 15. In the middle of the parable of the lost son, Jesus tells the groups, listen, there is a father who has two sons. The younger son has come up to the father and said, dad, give me my inheritance now. And in Middle Eastern terms, that literally means, dad, you're dead to me. You are worthless to me. You mean nothing to me. And that father, if he ever heard the words from his son before his death, give me my inheritance, that father would actually be a social outcast in his own village. Because that means you're not doing and your children don't respect you. So his father gives his son the inheritance. We're told as Jesus shares the story that his son goes off to a distant country, begins to do this wild living spending all of his inheritance. He's got nothing left. And then a famine sweeps into this country. And the son is sitting there realizing, a famine's here. I've wasted my entire inheritance. I have no food. 
and my father's servants back there are eating better than I am, I need to go back home. Maybe my dad will receive me as a servant because he won't as a son anymore. And he begins to sit down, and I imagine in my holy imagination, he starts to prepare a letter. How is dad going to receive me? I told him in front of our whole village that he's dead to me. And now I need to come back home. I've messed up. And I imagine this son sitting there going, I need to convince him. I need to have a speech or a letter for him. And he begins to jot down some ideas. Hey, Dad, I sure do love you. And I miss you right now. No, that's stupid. Hey, Dad, if I lined up all the dads in the world, I'd pick you. No, that's a little cheesy. Hey, Dad, I miss playing catch with you in the backyard. No, that's not how I truly feel. Then it dawns on him. I know exactly what to say to dad. And we're told in Luke chapter 15, verse 18, exactly what the son says. He finally figures out what his speech should be. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am, can we read these three words together? No longer worthy to be called your son. You know, I I have an issue with this. I don't like this letter. I don't like this speech that this younger son has prepared because it's you and it's me. There's times in our lives where we truly feel we are not worthy of God's love and his grace and his forgiveness. This speaks too close to home. That's why I have an issue with this letter. We've messed up. We go back to that addiction over and over again. And we look at our Heavenly Father and say, I'm not worthy to be called your son, your daughter. I'm not worthy to receive your forgiveness and your love and your grace. I've messed up. I keep going back to the drugs that I said I'm free from. And I'm addicted to alcohol to ease my pain in my life. And I'm not dependent on you. I'm not worthy to be called your son. I'm not worthy to be called your daughter. This hits home too close to our hearts. And there's some of us who are constantly, truly living this out, thinking we are not worthy. We're not worthy of what God has to give to us. Can I tell you good news this morning, friends? We are sons and daughters by birth, not worth. Listen, you aren't worthy. That's why Jesus had to go to the cross for you. 
And Jesus, when we fall into relationship with him and we put our faith and trust in him and we follow him, scripture tells us, God's word tells us that we are made new. The old is gone. The new has come. You and I are brand new. We are birthed into God's kingdom. You are a new creation. There's nothing you can do to receive God's love and his grace and his forgiveness. There's nothing more you can do. He loves you the way you are, so stop working towards it. All we have to do is say, God, I am empty. I can't keep doing this. My life is a mess. I just need to receive your grace. It's there. So many of us in our minds are writing that letter to God. God, I'm no longer worthy. I'm no longer worthy. I'm no longer worthy. I'm no longer worthy. Stop playing that reel over and over. Walk in your freedom. Tell the devil who has control and who's in charge. We're believing the lies of the enemy of your soul. Can you imagine if this world was just set on fire with followers of Jesus and they actually lived into their identity and their purpose and power? Oh, man, you would see a revolution like no other. We would be the first century church all over again in Acts if we actually lived that out ourselves. But then something changes in the story as Jesus is sharing. I imagine what it's like as... That son, that son probably puts that letter in his fanny pack because fanny packs are cool in the first century. It's my holy imagination. He puts it in his fanny pack and hops on his moped and gets out his iPhone and gets directions to back home and he's headed back to his dad with this letter of, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. What about the father? I wonder how many times that he goes out on his porch every morning and every afternoon and every evening and looks out at the horizon wondering, when is my son going to return? I still have hope. I miss him. I love him so much. When is he going to come home? I, my arms are open every morning, every afternoon, every evening. I'm just waiting. And I wonder if the town or village never got into the father's head to say, stop it. He called you dead in front of all of us. Just give up. He's worthless to you now. But I wonder if the father said, no, 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 no. I'm waiting. I know he's going to come back and I'm going to love on him. And something in verse 20 completely changes the narrative in front of the sinners and the religious. Luke chapter 15, verse 20. But while he, referring to the son, was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He, what friends? He ran. he ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. Now we read that with our 21st century Western eyes. And we say, oh, that's nice. Like that's a great, like if that was a movie, you would say, aww. We get that warm feeling. Dad's running after his kid. But in the Middle East first century, men, you do not run. It's undignified for a man to run. And when Jesus says these words, that the father ran to his son, it would have sucked 
the air out of the room. And I imagine those people listening sit there and go, I've never seen my daddy run before. I've never seen him do that. Who is this Jesus that's willing to say that this father ran to his son? And what's so great about this story, and there's still another half or another day of this parable that Jesus talks about, what's so awesome is what the son do? Really nothing. He's just coming back. Well, what's the father doing? He's running and pursuing, and it's all about this reckless, relentless pursuit of love and grace and forgiveness. This first half of this story is all about the grace of God. No matter how many times we fail or we've turned our back on God, He is running after us with arms wide open. Grace is not just a doctrine. It's not just an idea. It's not just a dogma within our faith. Grace is a person and His name is Jesus. Jesus manifests grace, Jesus embraces grace, Jesus is grace, and grace is Jesus. It completely changes the narrative of the story. We have a heavenly Father who is pursuing you when you feel like you are worthless. He's pursuing you. I love what Pastor Jack Hayford said. He said, grace is God meeting us at our point of need and the person of Jesus Christ. And when you meet grace, when you look grace in the eye, when you look at the nail prints in his hands and in his feet, when you see grace, you will forever be changed by grace. And it's grace. Jesus is grace. And grace costs you nothing. Grace costs Jesus everything. To the point where historians of Jesus' time and theologians had said that Jesus was beaten so bad and tortured so badly, you would not have even recognized him. As he's carrying a portion of his cross, He went to that thing for you and for me with all of our unworthiness, with all of our sin and hang-up and addictions to set us free. Grace is a person and his name is Jesus. It costs you nothing. It costs him everything. The only thing we got to do is say, God, I'm ready to receive it. I'm tired of that. I'm tired of living back there that the enemy of my soul wants to remind me who I am. I'm not that anymore. I'm not that. I am your son. I am your daughter. And this morning, I'm just receiving it. Can we bow our heads and close our eyes this morning? Some of us this morning, we have heavy hearts. We know exactly what it's like to say, God, I'm not worthy.
The tomb is empty to set you free. Everything you think you are was nailed to that cross when Jesus took the pain for you, when he took the torture for you, when he screamed his last breath, it is finished. Stop trying to work for his grace. It's there. Receive it. I want to give us an opportunity this morning just to receive God's grace and put your faith and trust into Jesus. And we just say this prayer quietly in your heart. Say, Heavenly Father, I need you more than ever right now. This morning, I put my faith and trust into you for the forgiveness of my sins, for freedom that I'm made new, that my old creation, my old self is gone, forgiven, set free, that I'm a new person in you, Jesus. I believe you went to the cross for me nailed my sin, my shame to the cross, was buried and defeated death three days later. Jesus, thank you for that, that I can have new life. Now help me to follow you all the days of my life, to journey with you, and if that was you this morning, still all eyes closed, at Radiant Life, what we tend to do is we truly believe in outward expression of an, in, of an internal change does something for your spirit and your soul when you're just saying, I've done it. I've gone in. So on the count of three, if you said that prayer for the first time and you just, God, I'm ready to receive everything, I want you to shoot your hand up on the count of three. One, God loves you so, so much. Two, you are a new creation, a son and daughter of the true king. Three, if you want to shoot your hand up in the air and you've said that this morning. Yes, I see your hand. Yes, amen. Yes, yes, Father. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. I see you in the back. Any more? Yes, thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Any more this morning? That was you. Amen. I see your hand there. Father, we thank you so much. God, we thank you for people to say, I'm ready to experience a new life. I'm ready to be changed because the resurrected king has resurrected me and I will stand and worship and be in awe of the act of resurrection Sunday that I am free. And Jesus, we thank you for new life. We thank you that you took our shame, took our regret, took our pain to the cross to give us new life, to set us free. And we thank you this morning in Jesus' name.